It's like James Bond, but better. Um, okay, there's a handout coming around, as there often is. Um, and one way or another, we're going to finish King Lear today, um, which is to say not finish it, which is um, part of what King Lear is about. Um, I'll just say, in case that uh, we run out of time and I, and I fail to say this, um, we're going to start doing Paradise Lost on Wednesday. Um, you should only you only need to read book one of Paradise Lost um, for Wednesday, not for the course. <laughs> we're reading all of Paradise Lost. Um, Paradise Lost will strike you as hard. You will it becomes easier as you get used to it. Um, but it will be hard at first, but also really, really amazing. Just to give you a brief introduction, um, Paradise Lost begins in hell, helium, um, and <laughs> one person got that. Um, and um, in hell, just so you know where we're starting off, Satan and the rebel angels have just been defeated by the empire of God. And um, Satan and the rebel angels have been driven from heaven. Satan is a fallen angel, as are all his followers. They have been driven from heaven to hell, where they um, find themselves completely and utterly stunned and um, um, destroyed. Um, but then they find that, in fact, they're not completely and utterly stunned and destroyed, and that they can um, continue or begin a rebellion from hell itself. Um, that they prefer to know the truth and to be free in hell than to be servants in heaven. So Paradise Lost begins with um, the um, standard way that the great epics, that the Iliad, the Odyssey, and the Aeneid um, begin with giving you a hero, namely Satan, who is going against almost impossible odds, namely God. And the question in Paradise Lost, as you read through all 12 books of Paradise Lost, um, the question in Paradise Lost is whether Milton is on Satan's side or on God's side. Um, the case for Satan is most strongly made, but not only there, but it's most strongly made in the first two books of Paradise Lost, which occur in hell and which give you Satan's point of view. And Satan's great line there is, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Um, so these are the things we'll start talking about Wednesday. Um, essentially what we're going to do for the first eight books or so of Paradise Lost, there's going to be one day where we do two books, but essentially we'll be doing a book, a class. That's the reading. Um, over break, over February break, um, you will be able to finish it, and we will finish it right after February break. That's part of the reason that I straddled February break with it. Um, so it's amazing. A lot of it will be really hard, and that's fine. Um, Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot thought that it wasn't written in English. Um, they were wrong. Um, but you will be in good company if you're baffled by part of it. But the idea in Paradise Lost, as the idea perhaps in all great literature, is to be blown away by the parts that blow you away. Um, and to get to those parts, even if they're set in parts that you're finding um, difficult and obscure, you will hit those parts and 
um, they're utterly amazing. My task, um, our task here will be um, to help you with some of the more difficult and obscure parts, but allow Paradise Lost to blow you away because it really will. Um, and it's really quite extraordinary that way. Um, the other thing is we're going to start doing sections, not this week, but next week. Is that okay with you, Courtney? Yeah. So um, they will be every other week. And um, again, I repeat, um, if you really want to be in a section with a friend, um, what we're the plan is to divide the class alphabetically, but if you're in one extreme of the alphabet and your best friend is in the other extreme of the alphabet, let us know and we'll try to accommodate you. Um, but otherwise, they're going to, the split will be um, somewhere around the letter J or K, which is where the alphabet tends to split. Um, questions, comments, concerns? Seeing none? Good. Okay, so um, in King Lear, we know, um, we talked about this on Friday, on Thursday, that the fool disappears in Act 3, and that's a little bit because um, Edgar takes over his role. What we also talked about on Thursday um, is, the, is the way in which the fool is one of the most amazing characters ever. Um, just what, um, what a powerful figure he is. Now, in the 17th century, there was a vogue for doing remakes of Shakespeare's plays. What happened at the end of the 17th century? Do you have a question? I'm sorry, I didn't get the handout. Oh, anyone? Any more handouts? <laughs> Did you get one? Did you get one? Yeah. Okay. Um, oh, there are more up there. Thanks. Um, at the end of the 17th century after King Charles II was restored to the throne and after the theaters were reopened, they'd been closed by the Puritans who were puritanical about theater, um, as the Taliban, for example, were in Afghanistan. The theaters were reopened in the 1660s when Charles II was restored to the throne. If you hear about restoration drama, and there's a course of restoration drama at Brandeis, what that has to do is with is the restoration of Charles II um, and the internal exile, therefore, of Milton. Um, when the theaters were reopened, um, the, they needed plays. And what they did was they went to Shakespeare, but they also thought that Shakespeare was really primitive. He was um, someone who'd been writing a half century before. This would be like um, going back to movies that were made in the 1930s and remaking them in the 1980s. There's that kind of gap. We don't quite think of the same gap as the gap between the 70s and now, or even the 60s and now, but more like the 80s and the 30s. So the Restoration dramatists, one of the things they did was they improved Shakespeare. They took Shakespeare plays and they did remakes of them, and the remakes were supposed to be um, much more critically acute, much more critically up-to-date, um, much more modern. Um, the late 17th century is where um, a kind of real recognizable modernism comes into English literature. And one of the remakes, one of the first, was a remake of King Lear done by um, a guy named Nahum Tate. And what Tate was, did was to rewrite the play um, following the 
history that Shakespeare used in which Cordelia and Lear don't die at the end, in which um, Regan and Goneril are defeated and um, Cordelia is put on the throne of England and Lear is himself restored to the kingship. So the restoration version of King Lear includes the restoration of King Lear. Um, so the guy who wrote this, Nahum Tate, gave you a happy ending version of Lear. That was the version of King Lear that people saw in the theaters for about the next 150 years was the restoration version, was Tate's version. That is, um, what Tate did was he took Shakespeare and tweaked and trimmed it. And the main um, most awful tweak that he did was he got rid of the fool. And the reason, if you think about why he got rid of the fool, um, you will see that he had to do it. That the, you cannot have the fool in a play that ends happily unless the fool comes off as just silly and wrong about things. The fool is a voice of absolute dark authority. And to bring the fool back to um, to, to bring the fool back to a play or to have the fool in a play which ends happily is, to, is simply to show the fool up, to show that he was wrong, to show that all the amazing things that he said um, turned out not to be true because things could end happily. So Tate's version of King Lear does not have the fool in it and it doesn't have the death of Lear and Cordelia in it. Um, what happens at the end of Tate's version is that Cordelia, who doesn't marry the king of France, um, but goes into internal exile herself, um, but, and watches what's happening to her father. At the end, Cordelia, do, more, more or less as Edgar does, at the end, Cordelia and Edgar get married. So it's all very happy. And they reign as king and queen, while Lear and Gloucester, who also doesn't die but is blind, um, go off to um, meditate on all the really interesting and deep things that have happened to them. Um, so it's all good. And this was the preferred version for a very long time. Now to talk about the real version, let's look at one of the ways that Edgar is taking over the role of the fool, which is in act, just at the beginning of Act 4, Scene 1, Edgar comes in alone. And um, he now thinks that he's hit bottom. And what he does here is his version. And remember, we were looking at the parallaxes between um, the Edgar Gloucester Edmund story and the Lear, Cordelia, Regan, and Goneril and Fool story. This is his version of the famous speech, which we don't have time to spend time on, of Lear out in the storm on the heath. So Lear on the heath has said, blow winds, crack your cheeks, rage blow, you hurricane spout, and he's calling upon the storm to storm down on him in one of the great sublime scenes in the play. Um, now Edgar is alone on stage as Lear has almost been alone before. The fool has been with him. And now Edgar says, yet better thus, Act 4, Scene 1, Line 1, yet better thus, and known to be contemned than still contemned and flattered, to be worst, the lowest and most dejected thing of fortune, 
stands still in esperance, lives not in fear. The lamentable changes from the best, the worst returns to laughter. Welcome then, thou unsubstantial air that I embrace. So that's his version of blow, winds, rage, blow. Welcome then, thou unsubstantial air that I embrace. The wretch that thou hast blown unto the worst owes nothing, that word again, owes nothing to thy blasts. So what he's saying here is when you hit bottom, that's good because you know you've hit bottom. You have nothing left to lose. And having nothing left to lose means that you are no longer in peril because there is nothing that is in peril. Um, the Janis Joplin version of that, of course, is freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. Nothing ain't worth nothing, but it's free. So he feels that he has nothing left to lose. And as is typical in King Lear, whenever anyone says, oh, okay then, things are now okay, someone comes in to prove them wrong. And who comes in here but Gloucester, led by an old man, and Edgar sees him, and his question is, but who comes here? My father, poorly led, you may have party-eyed, I prefer poorly led, which is one version. My father, poorly led, world, world, oh world, but that thy strange mutations make us hate thee, life would not yield to age. Now the word age there should be a surprising one. Not life would not yield to death. What he's saying is if we didn't come to hate the world because of the strange things, the strange mutations that happen in it, we wouldn't give up our love of life. We wouldn't yield life to what? To death, but no, to age. So there's an odd and strange opposition here that Edgar is giving us, an opposition between life and age. If you think of the end of the play, the last lines of the play are Edgar's again, and those last lines, as we said before, are the weight of this sad time we must obey, speak what we feel, not what we ought to say. The oldest hath borne most. We that are young shall never see so much, nor live so long. So what they have borne, what the oldest have borne, is that their lives have, or in this case his life, Lear's life, has not yielded to death, but to age. We that are young shall never see so much nor live so long. Bearing most means living too long, not being able to die. Where in this play do we get a literal description or a literal um, enactment of someone unable to die? Anyone remember? Yeah, Fritz. When Gloucester tries to jump off the cliff. Yeah. Gloucester, led by Edgar to what he thinks is the edge of a cliff because he's blind. Hang on, by the way, to Gloucester's blindness when we get to um, Jane Eyre. It's one of the, you were thinking that, good. Um, is led to the edge of a cliff because, what he thinks is the edge of a cliff because he's blind, and he jumps, thinking, finally, now I will die. And he doesn't. 
and he can't believe it, and he says his response to surviving what he thought would be a jump to his death, but what turned out just to be a jump forward horizontally, not vertically, his response to that is to ask, is wretchedness deprived that benefit to end itself by death? That is, wretchedness isn't that you will die in this play. Wretchedness is that you won't die. In that sense, the death of Cordelia and the death of Lear at the end of the play are, in fact, an ending to this eternal, this threat of eternal wretchedness, of life yielding not to death but to age. Life attempts to yield to death in this play, but instead it yields to age. So the very end of the play, just to point this out for you, and then um, we're going to get to um, a larger question which King Lear will focus. But the very end of the play, like so much in King Lear, this is something worth noticing, is a kind of recapitulation of the beginning of the play. So just as, to talk about some of the recapitulations we've already seen, Lear talking to the fool, can you make use of not, can you make no use of nothing, Nuncle? Why, no boy, nothing can be made out of nothing, is a recapitulation of what can you say to draw a third more opulent than your sisters? Speak, nothing, 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 nothing will come of nothing. Speak again. So. That interaction between Lear and the Fool is recapitulating the interaction four scenes later, four scenes earlier, excuse me, between Lear and Cordelia. Edgar, at the beginning of Act Four, is recapitulating Lear in the storm. The storm threatens death. Edgar is beyond that since it's unsubstantial air that he's embracing, not a wind that could kill you but a wind that isn't a wind. That's a stillness, but that is all that's left to embrace. Now, at the and I'll, I'll just say this because um, it's actually, I think, very important. Act 4, scene 1, which is Edgar Gloucester and someone Gloucester is speaking to, the old man. Act 4, scene 1 recapitulates Act 1, scene 1 with the play opening with Gloucester his son, Ed Mund, and Kent. That is, the, that is a parallel or parallactic threesome at the beginning of Act 1, Scene 1, and at the beginning of Act 4, Scene 1. At the very end of the play, Lear doesn't know whether Cordelia is alive or dead. He holds a feather to her lips. He holds a stone that is a mirror to her lips to see if it will condense. And what he wants from her is anything, any breath to come out of her mouth. That is the um, most terrible recapitulation of Act 1, Scene 1, where what Lear wants Cordelia to do is speak. Of course she can speak. She's just not saying what he wants. Now, if she said anything, it would be worth everything. He thinks he hears her say something. Ha, what is it thou sayest? And then he says, if you can't hear her, it's because her voice was ever soft, gentle, and low. Um, 
but I'm convinced I can hear something. He's desperate for any word or even a breath to come out of her lips. In Act 1, Scene 1, he says to her, Cordelia, mend your speech a little, lest you may mar your fortune. At the end of the play, he says to her, Cordelia, stay a little. In both cases, he fails. But the failure in Act 5 is life having yielded far more to age than the failure in Act 1. So note those connections. Note those parallels. So the broader question, and we're going to return to Act 4, Scene 1, so um, keep that page open. The broader question, it's a question that Aristotle asks, it's a question um, that has been asked since Aristotle, is the question, why does tragedy give pleasure? That is, what tragedy is about um, is really sad things happening. Tate said, well, tragedy may give pleasure, but it will give you more pleasure if the ending is happy. Um, I'm not going to give you a Game of Thrones spoiler, but um, my son, who's in college, um, we were watching Game of Thrones over break, and something happened in that show. It wasn't just, yeah, I killed another Stark, um, but something else happened in the show where everything implied that one um, good outcome was going to occur, and then the opposite occurred. Um, and my son just got up in absolute disgust, and he said, I'm through with this show. And he went storming upstairs, and he was really pissed off. Um, and kind of rightly so. Um, but but the question then is, um, why don't we always get pissed off when endings are tragic? Especially if they might not be. If Romeo had waited another 30 seconds, really, another 30 <laughs> seconds, we would have had a comedy in Romeo and Juliet. It would have been great. Um, but no, he didn't. Or as John Belushi might say, but no! <laughs> he refuses to wait those 30 seconds that would make it a comedy. Why not get angry at Shakespeare? Why not rewrite it? Romeo and Juliet, the comedy. Um, so Dr. Johnson, who was the greatest of 18th century critics and did an edition of Shakespeare, um, was one of the people who preferred Tate's version to Shakespeare's own. And Johnson um, had to edit Shakespeare's um, had to, did, did an edition of Shakespeare's works with notes. Um, some of what, some of your notes are ultimately derived from Johnson's notes. The 18th century notes on Shakespeare um, were the four bears of the notes that we now have. Stuff that people figured out in the 18th century, explanations, glosses. Johnson did the first dictionary in the English language. It's an amazing um, thing that he did, um, we'll talk a little bit more about him later, but that he did single-handedly over the course of nine years. Um, Johnson's Dictionary is just one of those um, phrases you should know. Um, the first dictionary, any dictionary in the English language that you now use, ultimately derives from Johnson's Dictionary. Um, that meant he had an amazing vocabulary and knew a whole lot of what obscure words in Shakespeare meant. Um, so he did this um, really amazing edition of Shakespeare, and he wrote general notes about each play. 
and he wrote a general note about King Lear, in which he responds to something a little bit earlier, about 50 years earlier, Joseph Addison, who was an essayist, and um, he was one of the two um, anonymous weekly or bi-weekly authors of what are called the Spectator Papers. Addison did most of them. Um, his friend Richard Steele did the others. Um, Addison had some remarks about King Lear and why he preferred Shakespeare to Tate when everyone else preferred Tate to Shakespeare. And so Addison says, this is a second quotation on the handout, Addison says, terror and commiseration leave a pleasing anguish in the mind. So that's what he's saying. Where is he getting the phrase terror and commiseration from? What's that translate? What's that his translation of? Those of you who did the reading for today, pity and fear. Yes, what Aristotle says: tragedy awakens in the audience pity or fear. So for Addison, he uses 18th century versions of those words: terror and commiseration. Remember Aristotle's um, account of why tragedy gives pleasure, or one aspect of the pleasure tragedy gives, is that we see a story which awakens in us spectators an experience either of pity or of fear. And at the end of the tragedy, we feel purged of those or that emotion. So we are brought to a pitch of terror or fear or we are brought to a pitch of pity. And then, at the end, we are brought to purgation or catharsis. Catharsis is the Greek word for purgation. It's a medical term. And what it means is the thing that was inside us and overwhelming us, we purge ourselves of, or tragedy purges ourselves of. And then we are left calm of mind, all passion spent, to quote Milton again. Calm of mind, all passion spent. So tragedy is something that intensifies our everyday human experiences of anxiety or of compassion for others, anxiety on behalf of ourselves, let's say, or anxiety on behalf of, our, of others, and brings it to an absolute pitch. And then we go beyond that and we hit a kind of bottom. That's what Edgar is saying in that speech. Yet better thus and known to be contemned than still contemned and flattered. Okay, that's not what we want to be, but if we are brought to the place where we feel that nothing more can harm those for whom we feel terror, for whom we feel pity. Nothing more can harm them because they've lost everything. And if we reconcile ourselves to that loss, says Aristotle, then we will have gone through everything and now we will be calm. So one idea of tragedy is that, um, and one interpretation of Aristotle, 
is that your everyday feelings that you go around the world with, your everyday buzz of anxiety, you go to a tragedy, you go to a movie, you go to something really, really intense, and all of it gets focused on that. And then when it's over, it's really over. And you may be exhausted, but you're calm. So that is one interpretation of Aristotle. And Addison more or less accepts that. Terror and commiseration leave a pleasing anguish in the mind. Pleasing anguish, an oxymoron. And fix the audience in such a serious composure of thought as is much more lasting and delightful than any little transient starts of joy and satisfaction. So a really great intense tragedy will leave you composed rather than feeling transient starts of joy and satisfaction. Accordingly, we find that more of our English tragedies have succeeded in which the favorites of the audience sink under their calamities than those in which they recover themselves out of them. So what he's saying is the great English tragedies, as they were understood to be in 1711, were ones which ended sadly for the main characters, for the characters we cared about. Those were the great tragedies. They sink under their calamities. Those in which they recover, people don't like as much. And then he goes on, King Lear is an admirable tragedy of the same kind, that is, of the kind where the audience's favorites sink under calamities. King Lear is an admirable tragedy of the same kind as Shakespeare wrote it, and that's how, how Addison wrote Shakespeare without the E at the end, as Shakespeare wrote it. But as it is reformed according to the chimerical notion of poetical justice, in my humble opinion, it has lost half its beauty. So the idea of poetic or poetical justice is that good people should, should ultimately prevail and evil people should be put down. And King Lear does not show poetic justice, according to Addison. The term poetical justice is a fairly new one in England at the time. And the idea would be that, of course, it's unjust for Lear to suffer at all, but poetic justice would be if he got back all that he lost. Addison is saying that would cause it to lose the tragedy itself, the way Tate has revised it, would cause it to lose half its beauty. Now, Johnson disagrees, and Johnson is wrong. Um, often wrong, never in doubt. Um, Johnson is wrong to disagree, but his disagreement is fascinating. So, 50 years or so later, he complains, Shakespeare has suffered the virtue of Cordelia to perish in a just cause, contrary to the natural ideas of justice. So that would be poetic justice, our natural ideas of justice. Contrary, he goes on, to the hope of the reader. An interesting word there, reader, rather than audience member. But the reason for that word is that no one got to see Shakespeare's version of King Lear. No one had seen it on stage in over a century when Johnson is writing this, unless there were amateur theatricals of some sort. So Shakespeare's version of King Lear is something only being read when Johnson is writing. Tate's version you can see, Shakespeare's you can read. 
So contrary to the natural ideas of justice, contrary to the hope of the reader, and what is yet more strange, contrary again, to the faith of chronicles. Again, in Shakespeare's sources, they live. Yet, this conduct is justified by the spectator, that is by um, Addison, who blames Tate for giving Cordelia success and happiness in his alteration, and declares that in his opinion, the tragedy has lost half its beauty. So quoting the passage that um, I reproduced just above, Dennis has remarked, we can skip that part, but now Johnson gets a little bit catty. Um, and then next paragraph. A play in which the wicked prosper and the virtuous miscarry may doubtless be good, be good because it is a just representation of the common events of human life. But since all reasonable beings naturally love justice... I cannot be persuaded that the observation of justice makes a play worse, or that if other excellencies are equal, the audience will not always rise better pleased from the final triumph of persecuted virtue. Now, Johnson, it's worth noticing here that Johnson doesn't seem to realize that he's equivocating on the word justice. What he says is, a play in which the wicked prosper and the virtuous miscarry may doubtless be good because it is a just representation of the common events of human life. So it is just. It gets human life right. But since all reasonable beings naturally love justice, it turns out that they won't like a just representation of human life. Since all reasonable beings naturally love justice, I cannot easily be persuaded that the observation of justice makes a play worse. And yet, it was an observation of justice. That is observation in the sense of looking at and seeing how things really worked. It wasn't an observation of justice as in religious observation. That is showing fealty to what justice would actually be. In the present case, he goes on, the public has decided. That is, the public prefers Tate to Shakespeare. Those are the plays that are being produced. Um, according to the laws of supply and demand, the demand side is for Tate and not for Shakespeare. In the present case, the public has decided. Cordelia, you should know, by the way, that Johnson knew Adam Smith. Um, they didn't really like each other. Um, but the idea of laws of supply and demand... Um, those are ideas that are floating around and um, that people are arguing. So it's not by accident that I use that phrase. In the present case, the public has decided Cordelia, from the time of Tate, that is from the mid-1660s, has always retired with ver victory and felicity. And if my sensations, and this is the great part, so first you have to decide, could it possibly be better to get rid of the fool and have Cordelia marry Edgar. I think, you know, that's fine for the children's book version. Um, that would be good. Um, but can you imagine that that would make a better play? And if your answer is no, then you're in the right class. Um, Tate's play isn't terrible, but it's terrible. Um, <laughs> I read it so you don't have to. Um, in the present case, the public has decided Cordelia from the time of Tate is always retired with victory and felicity. And, and this is the crucial part, and if my sensations could add anything 
to the general suffrage, that is the general vote, as in universal suffrage or women's suffrage. If, um, so this is what the general population has voted between the two. And if my sensation could add anything to the general suffrage, I might relate that I was many years ago so shocked by Cordelia's death that I know not whether I ever endured to read again the last scenes of the play till I undertook to revise them as an editor. So that's Johnson describing his own response and explaining why he prefers Tate, but also maybe explaining why we prefer Shakespeare. That is, what Johnson is saying is Shakespeare was too intense for him. The death of Cordelia so shocked him that he found the play unendurably intense. He couldn't endure to reread the last scenes of the play for years until he had to in order to edit the play. So Johnson's response, Johnson's vote is wrong, but the reason for his vote, the reason he votes for Tate, is that Shakespeare is too intense for him. And it's not that it's too intense for him because Johnson is, um, uh, is, is as my grandmother used to always complain, a mimosa, a hothouse flower. Um, it's because he sees how intense Shakespeare is. And for Johnson, what it is that Shakespeare does doesn't give him pleasure. But it's not because it fails to be intense. It's because it's too intense. So that raises the question again, how and why does tragedy give pleasure? Now, if you go back to this question, um, why life yields to age in King Lear, not to death, but to age. Um, go back to Act 4, Scene 1, and um, I want to point out a, um, an amazing speech of Gloucester's, and then we'll go look at a paragraph or two from Freud, which is also on the handout. So the amazing speech of Gloucester's, this is, he's still talking to the old man, and he and the old men are aware of Edgar's presence, but not that it's Edgar. That is, there's someone there. Um, and Edgar, in the meantime, is saying, you can't hit bottom. This is around line 25, Edgar. Oh, gods, who is it can say, I am at the worst. I am worse than ere I was. The old man says, oh, tis poor man Tom. And Edgar is acting mad. Um, but he's really upset. He's not, acting, he's not acting anymore. He's very upset. Tis poor man Tom, the old man says. And Edgar goes on. I'm worse than e'er I was, and worse I may be yet. The worst is not, so long as we can say, this is the worst. The old man addresses him. Fellow, where goest? Gloucester, is it a beggar man? Madman and beggar too. And Gloucester says he has some reason else he could not beg. That is, he is not entirely mad, or he wouldn't be able to beg as well. Now, the question of beggary has come up several times in the play. Lear's amazing line, when he sees what he calls um, you house, your houseless heads and unfed sighs, your looped and windowed raggedness, those who abide the pelting 
of this pitiless storm. Um, he's been a king. He's ignored it. But then he says, I have taken too little care of this. So crucial thing that happens to Lear through the fool, through the storm, through his own exile in what had been his kingdom, is Lear learns how unendurable life is for others, for the poor. And that's a lesson that can't end up in Lear becoming restored to the throne and being rich again. He has to learn, as we might say, what it's like to be outside, what it's like not to have protection in a world which is becoming more and more a world of being outside, what it's like not to be self-possessed. And his understatement, and what happens in this play is that understatement becomes more and more its mode. Because overstatement settles things. Yes, it's terrible. I've hit bottom. This is the worst. That settles things. Understatement is the idea that anything you describe, your description will not be final. Any darkness, any poverty, any um, loss that you try to describe, when you understate that, that's what life yielding to age is technically an understatement because death is supposedly worse than age. But understatement is to take age as something that goes on forever. Death is the end of things. Age doesn't end. Understatement is Cordelia's mode. Nothing, she says. And then Cordelia, stay a little. That's all he wants is a little. That's an understatement for what he wants, but he can't even get that. So that idea of poverty, represented by Edgar, who is poor, but not only Edgar. Now Gloucester says he has some reason else he could not beg. And then he goes on, in the last night's storm, I such a fellow saw which made me think a man a worm. My son came then into my mind, and yet my mind was then scarce friends with him. I have heard more since. So listen to the understatement of I have heard more since. He's heard everything. He's discovered that the son he loved is trying to kill him and has caused him to be blinded, and the son he tried to kill was abused. But now this play, the way it's gone from hurricanes and howling winds to thou unsubstantial air that I embrace, we have gone from the extreme, how could he do this, this is awful, I can't believe it, to I have heard more since. Emily Dickinson talking about another since in Shakespeare. Um, it's the word since in Antony and Cleopatra, where what happens is Antony hears falsely that Cleopatra has committed suicide. She sent a message. So she says, um, go tell Antony I committed suicide. See how he takes the news. Um, and Antony hears the news. And his response is immediately, his next line is, since Cleopatra died, I have lived in such dishonor 
that the gods detest my baseness. And that sense is a sense that covers a second, a beat. Cleopatra has killed herself. Since Cleopatra died, I have lived in such dishonor that the gods detest my baseness. It's a single beat, but what Shakespeare and Antony are getting is the idea that when someone dies, they're infinitely far away. And so Emily Dickinson's comment on this in a letter, she quotes it and she just says, that engulfing sense, the word sense engulfs everything. This is a similar sense, but in the mode of understatement, I have heard more sense. Now look at the Freud, which I know you've read, but which I put on the handout. And uh, you can think Freud goes too far. I do. But ask what makes him go that far in these two paragraphs. To avoid misunderstandings, bottom of the left-hand part. This is Freud. To avoid misunderstandings, I should like to say that it is not my purpose to deny that King Lear's dramatic story is intended to inculcate two wise lessons, that one should not give up one's possessions and rights during one's lifetime, and that one must guard against accepting flattery at its face value. So, but Freud is saying it would be ridiculous to think that that was the lesson of King Lear. Yeah, that's a good idea. Don't believe flattery, and um, don't give up your rights during your lifetime. Okay, so King Lear teaches that lesson, the end. Not. These and similar warnings, Freud goes on, are undoubtedly brought out by the play. But it seems to me quite impossible to explain the overpowering effect of King Lear from the impression that such a train of thought would produce, or to suppose that the dramatist's personal motives did not go beyond the intention of teaching these lessons. So that can't be the whole story. Otherwise, it would not have its overpowering effect. Lear carries Cordelia's dead body onto the stage. Cordelia is death, says Freud. If we reverse the situation, it becomes intelligible and familiar to us. She is the death goddess who, like the Valkyrie in German mythology, carries away the dead hero from the battlefield. Eternal wisdom, clothed in the primeval myth, bids the old man renounce love, choose death, and make friends with the necessity of dying. Now, you can make Freud right, in my opinion. You can make Freud right if you think it's excessive to see Cordelia as the goddess of death. You can make Freud right if you don't see the goddess of death as a goddess of power. If you see death, rather, as what Cordelia will finally represent to him. Cordelia, who turns from him to a husband, because he's an old man. He has to give up the idea that he will be the most important man in her life. He's old. He's dying. But Cordelia, who will die herself. So she, it would be better to say she represents the fact of death, or maybe even the fact of dying more than the fact of death. And that amazing phrase that the old man must renounce love, choose death, and make friends with the necessity of dying. I think Freud is getting the word friends there from Edgar, from, excuse me, from Gloucester. And then, yet my mind was then scarce friends with him, is what he says about Edgar. My son came then into my mind, and yet my mind was then scarce friends with him. 
If Cordelia is the necessity of dying, so is Edgar. And what this play ultimately is about, I think what makes it as powerful as it is, um, what to some extent, I hope you'll read them, the Wittgenstein quotes at the, at the top and at the bottom of the handout are also about, is that in this life in which you lose everything, the one thing that you can look for is friends who are going through this with you. That is that friendship, not love, which is possession of some sort, not riches, not wealth, not insight, not truth, but friendship is what tragedy offers you. The friendship of those who are also dying, like Shakespeare, like Johnson, like Addison, like Wittgenstein. They know what it's like. You know what it's like to know what it's like. And that idea that there are others in this world that you can make friends with, that idea, I think, is the friendship of Lear with the fool. That's what that friendship is about. That's why it's so important. What Freud is seeing here, in some sense, is that Cordelia really is the fool, that the truth of Cordelia is the fool, and that truth is a truth of friendship in a life that will yield to age, but also will eventually yield to death. OK, Paradise Lost, more fun. More fun, yet more fun. Thank <laughs> you.